Outrocast. So, Brian, how is your day going aside from uh, answering the same questions over and over and over again from journalists? Hey, man, this is great. Like, I've worked on this movie for four something years and it, it's finally coming out and I get a chance to talk about it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. Yeah, not just a star, not just the producer, writer, director. Did you know outright, hey, you want to have all these hats? Or did a director fall through and you went, okay, I'm doing that? No, I wanted to do it all. Um, I just thought, hey, let's try it. Let's see if I can do it. Um, I, I know I'm not the first person in the history of time to do this, so I didn't think it was that crazy of an idea. Um, and I really had the vision for it, and I wanted to, I wanted to tell it. I wanted to tell this story. And I wanted to play this role. And um, so, yeah, that was always the vision. And yeah, there were iterations where people were like, hey, this can get made if you aren't in it or if you <laughs> aren't directing it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that version. I want to do this version. And then maybe the next movie, I won't be in it or whatever. But for this one, I want to try it. And uh, I, it was for me, it was like film school. I learned how to make a movie from um, Soup to Nuts. It's it's crazy. Like I, I <laughs> did. I was a part of every single uh, process in this and I, it was amazing the was whole awesome. the whole concept and sorry to rudely interrupt you there but uh, the whole concept of i wrote the thing we'll buy it but don't be in it does that all come back to stallone and rocky <laughs> in the back of your mind yeah i mean yeah it's just like look i wasn't getting the roles i wanted at the time which inspired me to kind of one of the inspirations to to to, to to make my own movie. Um, but I, my real inspiration was to tell the story, but I, I was like, if people aren't gonna give me the roles that I want, I'll, I'll make it myself. And, you know, I was sort of like backed into a corner with it. And, um, you know, I just, I took a negative situation and I turned it into a positive for myself. And uh, uh, I guess I'm kind of proud of myself for, for just fighting and, and get, getting it made, because it was not easy. That's fascinating to me that you weren't getting the roles that you were hoping for, because us as the outsiders, we don't see the movies in the order that they were filmed. Yeah. So I would go, yeah, I just saw Brian a couple of months ago and you people. Yeah. So in other words, I'm not thinking of, hey, I haven't seen that guy in a while, but you no, on the other hand. I was working. Don't get me wrong. I was working. I wasn't. But and, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to disparage any of the projects I was working on. I just felt like as an actor, I had more depth to me and just like a different level to reach. And I wanted to show that to myself and the audience. And uh, I wasn't getting those opportunities. So I decided to create Mount. Got it. Yeah. Usually when I'm speaking with a director, I go, so who's the first actor that came on board with this that <laughs> said it was okay? Obviously it's Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really have a choice in that. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, to be honest, Jamie's such a fantastic actor. I'd put her in anything and everything. And I, I think she's, um, she has like the emotional depth to, 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 to nail the, that this role required. So I was like, please, please. I had a beggar to do it. And she, luckily she, yes. Yeah, just like when I had a beggar to marry me. <laughs> well, credit goes to her because when you think of the first place that we knew of Jamie, road rules. Right. At, oh, no, uh, no, real world. I'm sorry, uh, another Buna Murray production. Uh, <laughs> when you think about that, the talent incubator that is Road Rules and Real World, it's incredible mm. how many big stars came from those shows. So kudos to her for showing the depth for overcoming all the odds with all that. Now, who's yeah. the second talent that went, uh, Brian's doing this, I'm on board? 
I mean, it was, uh, I don't remember the order of it. I mean, I called in a lot of favors on this one, you know. Uh, most of these people I've worked with before, um, except for D Dasha, I didn't know her. But uh, uh, but Griffin, Griffin Dunn, I worked with on how to make it. Uh, Ryan Eggold, I didn't work with, but I was a fan of. Um, and uh, and, and we, we, we met at film festivals. Michaela Conlon, I went to NYU with back in the day. Um, you know, I just, I, these were all favors. These were all, you know, Yada Martinez uh, worked with her on, on The Tick on Amazon. It, it, so I just, I, I you, you normally directors doing this kind of budget of a film don't get this cal caliber of a cast together. Um, so I was very, very lucky. And I called in all the favors and they said, yes. You just said one of the magic names, NYU. Yeah. I would say one in three shows being made right now is either starring showrun directed produced by an nyu alumnus when did you start really? to notice that all the people you were going to school with were running hollywood i haven't worked with that many of them a am I? I i i maybe i'm not aware of them uh they weren't in my class okay well if we if we go to that amazon mr and mrs smith ad adaptation oh okay <laughs> uh oh, the two leads... lover right there right did he yeah. yeah donald glover and um ms erskine uh went yeah. there and then yeah. look at Miles Teller, et cetera. Oh, Miles did too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'm a little older than them, and it's funny because, like, I always say that, like, I'm I'm 45, right? But um, you know, when I came up at NYU, like, our job was just to be actors. Like, that's all I knew, and um, it was just to be the best best version of an actor. And I think like Donald Glover, maybe five years younger than me, and Mindy Kaling, and you know, Aziz and this whole other, I don't know if Aziz went to NYU, but there's like a five year gap where, where I think those are the people that decided, no, 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 we're going to create our own projects. And we're going to, and I think that's just, that was, I, I came to that lesson a little bit later. Um, and I think it was ingrained, ingrained in, in a younger generation. I think this younger generation is content creators and they do that, but I kind of had to learn that skill uh, retroactively. Got it. So speaking of retroactively, are we allowed to know what projects next for me or do we just have to wait for the Hollywood Reporter and Variety <laughs> embargoes to lift? Uh, yeah, I'm currently filming a project called The, em the Emperor of Ocean Park for MGM Plus uh, with Forrest Whitaker um, in Chicago. Uh, I just, well, I'm not in Chicago right now. I'm in Los Angeles. I was in Chicago yesterday filming that and then I'm here doing Junkie. Wow. But I we're going back to Chicago next week to film um, that. And I don't know when that's coming out because we just started filming, but it's a fantastic script, fantastic cast. And I'm excited to be a part of it. Is that just you on screen as actor or also producer? No, just actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now I'm just acting. I mean, I've been developing my own uh, projects. I just wrote a television pilot. I wrote another film. I'm writing another film. So I am it, it, uh, exercising that muscle more now because I, I want to do more of this. I want to be more of a, uh, a writer and a director. So what I'm hearing is the next time that there's a Brian Greenberg project, we don't know what network or streamer it's going to, which film studio, what your job titles are going to be, how many job titles you're going to have on that. You, hey man, I'm an artist. You know, you look at my profile. I just, I know I, people ask me what I do and I'm like, no, I'm an artist. I create. I mean, I've made, I put out albums I've, as a musician. I I just, I don't know. I it's And it all helps me. It, it's all it's all it, it it all leads me to this place where i'm at right now like when i'm in an edit i felt that was not that crazy of a place to be because i've sat over a 
a music producer's shoulder for many years, like, hey, let's adjust this rhythm and do that. And that's what editing is. It's like finding the rhythm. So it's all connected to me as an artist, you know, it's all storytelling. It's all, I don't know, getting your vision across and, help, and helping to elicit performances and, and um, from other people to help get that vision across. Cool. Well, last question before I let you go. You did mention the musician part. I was curious. You have L.A. ties. Right. Was Van Halen ever an influence on you? Van Halen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I grew up in the 80s, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the Midwest in the 80s. So, yeah. I mean, uh, Animal, Jump. Yeah, of course. Why? Why? <laughs> do, you, do you hear you hear it or see it in my work at all? Because uh, anytime you say the name Van Halen, your article traffic goes up about 34% overnight. Oh, was Van Halen out of this? No, the bottom line is uh, thank you for the many years of great art. Really looking forward to whatever's coming next from you. And congrats on Junction. Appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to talk to, talk to me about it and getting the word out there. Appreciate it. Outrocast. Hey, this is Eric Nelson, and you're watching the Paltrowcast. Outrocast. Aside from having to talk to people like me, is it an okay day for you so far? Yeah, it's fine. Good, thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, I'm a fan of the bands that you've been in, collaborated with, etc. But it's exciting to see the Iron Claw doing really well with your music in it. So how long did you have to keep it a secret that you were scoring this film? Because when it hit the trades that A24 was doing it, kind of all eyes were on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I tried to keep it a secret <laughs> um, at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sean asked me to do it while we were still working on The Nest, his previous film that I scored, because um, we were having a very good time working together, and uh, and we're both really we're really loving what the what the collaboration was yielding. Um, and he was like, "Yeah, the next one is a bit of a curveball. It's about wrestling." <laughs> but uh, I was being a a teenage wrestling fan myself. I was like, "I'm in <laughs> right away." Well, that was actually going to be my next question about how much awareness you had of that. Because if we're going to say Canadian teen wrestling, more likely it was the Hart family that drew you in, not the Von Erichs. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, good way to know your history. That is entirely true. I was I loved the Hart family as a, as a young teen, 12 year old, 13 year old. Um, and that was kind of my reference point, to be honest. But I think I think that the Hearts had a, had a seemingly a less i'm sure it was fraught in its own way but a, a a less fraught relationship to their dad than the von erics and uh definitely less of a less of a brutally tragic family history there yeah when there's 11 12 kids there's bound to be a lot of tragedy it's just in the case of the von erics it was basically all of them except one without getting too spoilery but you yeah. know over to you sometimes when you're scoring a film you were there on the set, you see everything, you have all the footage. And then other times it's like, um, we need it in three weeks and uh, here's some of it. Which one were you for this? Had you seen all the footage and been around or was it a mm, just do what you do, Rich? Um, no, it, it was uh, thankfully thus far. I haven't I haven't been in one of the um, we've got three weeks. Can you pretty this up for us situations and and to be honest that kind of situation doesn't really appeal to me um, right and i'm i'm really you know lucky and, and thankful that that uh both 
Well, th this one, this is the earliest I've been involved, to be honest, because I knew way in advance of it even existing that I was going to be involved. And so as soon as there was a script, I, I read it um, way before they went into production. And and the fact of, of that uh, and that I had a lot of time to mull in advance, like what might the approach be to this? And Sean was very hands off to start. Uh, he was very carte blanche about it, you know, do do what you want. But he... He said, um, I'm picturing big drums. And that was kind of, that was it. It was kind of like, that was the directive. And I was like, okay. And um, and he also gave me the the playlist of, of songs that he'd been listening to while he was writing it. It's all these like really great 70s kind of working man songs and kind of, I can yeah. do it. I know, I know I've, I can do it kind of songs. Stranglehold by Ted Nugent has made a comeback, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh so with that, you know, that very minimal amount of information, I kind of, I started mulling and I also like, before they started shooting, I started just like knocking around ideas just in, in the dark, knowing what the, you know, knowing what the, the, the basic arc of the film was going to be, even though these things change from, from the script stage to the to final edit stage quite a lot. Um, and the idea occurred to me that, it could be a cool approach that, that there's some kind of music happening that's like, you know, related to, you know, Sean listening to all these songs. I was like, maybe there's something, maybe there's something internal to one of the characters that's like, he's kind of got a song in his head and he's singing to himself. Maybe we, maybe we, you know, approach part of the music from that angle, like where there's some kind of ongoing musical monologue of sorts, not of a literal sort necessarily, but something. And uh, and then at a certain point, this this song that um, me and Laurel, uh, Little, Little Scream wrote, just just happened as, as it does when you spend enough time playing music with someone, this, this kind of song idea came out. And I thought, I really think this might, work for the film and i said to sean i think i've got a song that might be a thing um although he you know he hadn't asked for a song at this point but but it was funny like i think i think in his mind at that point the song like he knew that he wanted to have uh, mike the younger brother playing some sort of song in the film but he hadn't actually asked me for that i think he thought maybe it would be something else it'd be a cover it would be like whatever i don't i don't know if he had articulated that to himself but as soon as he heard this and again this is well in advance of of the production of the film mm -hmm. he was he was like oh my god this is it like this is this is a gift we gotta we gotta build this into the film we gotta have them play this this has got to be what you know this has got to be in, in part of mike's life this this song mm. um which was really which was really cool and so i was kind of like then working on score ideas simultaneously to getting the song together and then like teaching you know i ended up having to teach mike um and the other guys that that played it with him, the lovers band um how to play the song because it was me playing all the instruments um and that was great that that like to me that level of depth of involvement in the kind of dna of, of the film or of the of the upbringing of the film if not the dna um is really like that's the, that's the dream to be kind of worked in with the fabric of creating the thing not just you right. know building build helping build the, the foundation of the house not just wallpapering it right at the very end um that's definitely my preferred way to work is to be more inside of the thing and and really like if the music can inform 
the production in some kind of way that's that's amazing because it just elevates and kind of interweaves the two things that much more i think so it sounds like a good mix of you getting to be you and direction in other words you weren't given too little direction it seems like the right amount and all that and if shifting in another direction here you know you're not the only arcade fire member who's found success in scoring uh colin has done some stuff i believe sarah's done some stuff is it a coincidence that members of the group and collaborators of the group have become part of the film world? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, for me, it was always, it was always a goal. Um, mm. Like from a, from like a kind of a teenage, teenage period of my life, I, some part of me was like, Oh, I'd love to score movies and just didn't know how to get there. And, and, um, and, you know, my, my road to, my road here has been kind of roundabout and different from a lot of film composers who that's, that's what they do. That's the only thing they do. Um, and I think same, same for Colin. Um, and, uh, but, but like, I mean, interestingly, me and Sarah, when, when we were, when we started Bell Orchestra, um, we were both in university and I think both of us assumed that because of the nature of that music that like, that people would come knocking for us to do film scores and weirdly nobody ever did. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was also, you know, it was, it was a very part-time ensemble. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I think I always assumed we were, we were scoring like um, dance contemporary dance performances together and, and we were doing kind of live, live soundtracks to films um, that as, as part of our kind of early days in Montreal musician, musician life. And, and university life and so I just kind of assumed that somehow the film composition thing would work itself out and uh, amazingly it, it has <laughs> without me yeah. taking a you know a straight track to it um and it was it was actually it was actually Sean Sean really loved a record that I put out called Music for Heart and Breath and he he wrote uh he got in touch with me saying he'd written the, the Nest the film he was then working on entirely listening to that that record on loop ah. and would I would I possibly think about scoring it um and that was before Arcade Fire had had done the her soundtrack uh as well so that was really that was kind of the first thing for any of us I think maybe all oh, maybe Colin had, had no I don't I think Colin's first real film work was like 2017 maybe I'm not sure anyway um all that to say it, it really arrived at my doorstep kind of organically um for like through through the kind of music for music's sake not through trying to specifically be a film composer just more like through making music which to me is, right. is the dream um and that's always how i try and relate to these things as well as like try to you're making a film score you're trying to serve the film but before that before that you're actually trying to make music for music's sake and um i'm trying to just work with with directors who can really get behind that get in, get into that because i think you know you can kind of tell with a lot of with a lot of film music you can kind of tell it's just some some film music makes it makes a great album and some film music is only good as the as the soundtrack to the film while you're watching the film and i would much much rather aim for the first rather than the latter good call so it sounds like this you can want something and the more you chase it, the less you get it, then you stop chasing it and then you got it. And here you are. And we're sometimes talking <laughs> yeah, about... when we're lucky, when we're lucky. 
we're talking about your work on a very acclaimed thing. And, you know, two questions and then I let you go. The first one is often when you have a successful project, people go, oh, he did that. Okay, let's have him do that again. So in the case of, say, the movie The Wrestler, when that was a big hit and it revitalized Mickey Rourke, a lot of the studios start going, oh, okay, so there can be more wrestling things. And now that the Iron Claw is successful, now people are saying, okay, there's a Hulk Hogan movie at Netflix, and we can look into this biopic and that biopic. Has anything wrestling-related come to you since as a result of working on the Iron Claw? <laughs> not to my knowledge, not not yet. Not yet. Um, but early days, I suppose. But, I mean, ironically, it's like, it's like most of the score i would say the bulk of the score isn't really scoring wrestling itself it's really much more it, it you know inter interlaced with the kind of emotions the deeper emotions of the story sure. the kind of tragic story and so it's it's not like i did this you know this like fantasia for wrestlers or anything like that where people are yeah, like you wow this guy really knows how to score wrestling like there's really... you know there's some there's there's action scenes but it, that was not the the focus of the thrust of the score yeah to rudely interrupt you here it's not like they went hey right eye of the tiger you know sideways 12 times that wasn't the score you gave an actual craft musician's kind of score but sometimes when people have parentheses this project people go oh okay he could do that so let's let's now have him do a bunch of entrance themes to wrestlers but one day we'll see if that happens and uh, sure sure <laughs> the, yeah. the last question i have for you is you know this is a big project but knowing what we know film takes forever to come out books take forever to come out etc so are we allowed to know what's next from you whether it's scoring yeah. sideman oh please tell um, I mean, I, actually, I, amazingly, like I just did this this year of like intense amounts of for me film scoring, where um, I actually uh, the film that I finished scoring a few months ago just got announced that um, that it's uh, premiering at South by Southwest, um, <laughs> and it's it's a really really cool kind of it's a documentary with with. Um, stage parts it's not a traditional documentary at all it's kind of an experimental fantastical documentary called adrienne in the castle hmm. um directed uh actually directed by my wife who is who is uh, laurel springlemeyer who is little scream uh not directed by her sorry written written by her co-written by her and directed by a woman named shannon walsh um that's a really cool special unique piece of work um so that's the next thing that'll probably appear from me um and beyond that's that's the that was the end of my extremely busy year of scoring because i did before the iron claw i did um eileen the the william oldroyd film um with the dan hathaway's in that's also a really amazing film it's flown a little bit more under the radar than uh than the iron claw but but um yeah so that's the next thing there's also there's also non-film music things happening. There's a, a record um, that I made. There's actually a, like a string trio record that I did with Sarah Newfeld from Arcade Fire and a dear friend of ours, Rebecca Foon, um, that's coming out uh, sometime this year. Also, just the three of us. Um, and a record, a duo record that I made with my dear friend, Dallas Good, um, who sadly was in a band yes. called the Sadies, but he passed um, <clears throat> just about two years ago now. Um, so I finished that 
uh, a little while ago and that'll be coming out as well. So those are the next things in terms of public public offerings um, and what's next for me scoring wise. I'm not sure. I'm in discussion with a couple of different projects that I might or might not get involved with. And uh, as you say, these things are, are slow moving. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot coming from you. We don't know <laughs> when it's coming, but we just have to put <laughs> you on Instagram Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And that's how we'll know what's coming out when it's coming out. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to be how the, how the whole thing works these days anyway. So. Exactly. But uh, you know, ending on a compliment here, thank you for the many years of great art, looking forward to what's to come and hopefully uh, you're sweeping some awards uh, very, very soon. Fingers crossed for that. We'll, we'll see what happens, but thank you. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're traveling tomorrow, so you're yeah. a busy, busy person. So how is your day going? Are you packed? Are you ready for tour? Uh, yes, I'm ready. I, I made the last rehearsal in my little studio in Paris, you know? Yes. Uh, uh, so it's going to be okay. So, and I'm so excited. It's, uh, it's a really big thing for me. Uh, I will tell you the story. It's a beautiful story. Well, it's a great new record, and it's an impressive gathering for the tour. Uh, when did you actually finish the album? Well, the the album was released last May, uh, and we spent maybe six to eight months to do it. Uh, and it was very special at the time, um, because there was, uh, you know, the pandemic, yeah, and, uh, it's not a secret, but at the time I was very ill. Yes, uh, that's why the, I called the album "Life" uh, because I have a, an acute leukemia, and I have a bone marrow transplantation from my older son, uh, whose name is Lennon. So that's a beautiful story, and at the same time, I have this project with uh, Chris Temi. Mm -hmm. uh, who is one of my heroes since, since I was a teenager. So yeah, I think I was saved by this project and by chemotherapy, of course, but it was. Yeah, it, it's, it's such, uh, it's such a beautiful sounding happy album, but you had yeah. your health scare and then there was flooding for one of the studios with logistics. This person's in North Carolina. This person's in France. It, Everyone's people, everyone's all over the world. So it's a miracle you finished this album. Exactly, exactly. And this band is a miracle. Just, just to tell you the story, when when I was a teenager, you know, I live in France and uh, I, I'm i in Paris, but um, I grew up in Normandy, in, mm -hmm. a, in a little town in Normandy, and it was very difficult to get uh, albums from the US at the time. And, yeah. <clears throat> And when I was 12, 13 years old, I was a huge fan of the DBs. Uh, yeah. And just because the, the public library in my town get one album of the DBs, that was repercussion, you know. And uh, I remember with my bike going to the library, borrow the records, keep it home three weeks, and then coming back to the library and borrowing the album again to have it all the time in my house. And I was a huge fan of, of, of the DBs. Later, I was a huge fan of Let's Active and Mitchister. And yeah. when I was 
a young adult, I was a big fan of Nada Surf. And Me too, yeah. That, that's totally crazy because on stage, there will be all these people. And I worked with all these people on the album. Uh, I, I mean, it's a miracle. There's not a lot of miracle in life. But this tour and this album is a, is a real miracle. Hi, I'm David Coverdale from Whitesnake. You're listening to the Gwyneth Paltrow cast featuring Darren, the sexy beast from wherever the hell he is. Jordan and Jordan, it's a pleasure to be speaking with both of you. And I'll first throw it to JYL. Uh, Two-parter, how are you? And what do I call you in the case when there's two Jordans in the room? <laughs> talented Jordans. And people want to go, I want to speak to JYL. What do you do? What What's the naming protocol? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I'm doing well. Thank you. Hope the same for you. Happy that my uh, roof did not blow off the house last night. It was a little... Uh, a little nerve-wracking there for for a little bit. Totally. Um, same, same here in Long Beach, not too far from where you grew up in the five towns, right? That's right. Yep. And that, now I'm in the North Shore, so uh, still close by. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, with, with Jordan B. and myself, typically it's just been Jordan is, is me and people refer to Jordan B. as JB. It's just been like a natural kind of organic thing. So that's how we differentiate. Got it. So JB, is your roof on tight? You're fine. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I'm in Westchester, and so I was a little nervous about flooding, but uh, no problems last night. So all all good. North Shore, Long Island, Westchester, the two places Manhattanites resent most, we would say, <laughs> outside of New Jersey. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with both of you. You know, as a writer, interviewer who's taping junkets five six days a week, things that both of you are working on are pitched. It seems like one a week, I get one of your things here. When Tribeca comes around, it's like seven things. In that <laughs> Bucky F and Dent, obviously, that was a big deal. That was one of the titles where I was going, man, please let me get on that junket. But uh, JYL, I'll throw this to you. What is out in theaters and are on demand right now that people should be paying attention to that you and JB worked on? Yeah, sure. So I would say our most recent release is The Kill Room. Starring Uma Thurman, Sam Jackson, Joe Manganiello, and uh, that one might still be in theaters. It was out in in uh, maybe 500 plus when it initially released, and it's definitely on demand as well. Uh, cool art heist thriller movie. Um, we also have, I would say, probably a good 10 plus other movies that are out there now, everywhere from Hulu to Showtime. Um, one of our, actually the first movie Jordan and I did together was called After Everything with Jeremy Allen White, who's hot as hell now, of course, because oh, yeah. of the bear. And, you know, for me, the Iron Claw, which I love that film. Um, oh yeah. Really, really, really wild, cool movie. Um, granted, I know the story, so it makes even more sense. But, uh, but anyway, that's out there on Hulu. We have Alone Together that we did with Katie Holmes on Hulu. Same as Rare Objects with Katie. Showtime, we have, what do we have? As They Made Us with uh, Dustin Hoffman, Diana Agron. We have Becky 1, Becky 2 on Showtime. So we, we have a lot of films floating out there. 
again, these junkets, I think I did Becky one and Becky two. You don't get all the JB and JYLs, but the ones you do get as the writer interviewer, you're psyched to get. So JB, how did you and JYL first meet? Yeah. So I was a lawyer, um, actually for about 10 years, I practiced entertainment law coming out of law school and, um, I was introduced to uh, Jordan Levine um, probably in 2010 when I was working in uh, Manhattan. And uh, so he and and his uh, uh, old partner, Ash Christian, who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago, but uh, I started representing them and Jordan and I just kind of uh, hit it off and we're working together for many years. And uh, it was kind of a... Uh, <laughs> like a little side project where, you know, we were talking one day and I said, Hey, you know, uh, you know, I'd be interested in producing, you know, would you want to do that together? I had a lot of contacts and, you know, investors and other producers. And obviously Jordan was, was actively producing. And so we did one, this Jeremy Allen White project and I loved it. I loved the process. It was crazy and stressful and fun and exciting and all of those things. And, and so I came back, we shot that in New York. I was living in California at the time. Uh, shot that, came back, we had an opportunity to do another one and uh, decided to leave my law practice and just pursue this uh, full time. And so we started Yale Entertainment in uh, 2017 and uh, we've been going strong uh, ever since then. So uh, JYL, how does Yale University feel about Yale Entertainment? Any idea? <laughs> yeah, we're in a legal battle with them right now, but we're winning. No, we're not, just really not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. My, my middle name is Yale. My, my father went there, still very actively involved uh, in the culture and the university. Um, so really, it was just when I was starting out by myself, I needed a company name, which uh, became Yale Productions. And then over time, it started to gain some uh, some credibility through movies like King Cobra with James Franco, Christian Slater, Jack Goes Home or Rory Culkin. And the time that Jordan B and I hooked up, we said, you know what, let's just use the name because it's already out there, has some credibility. And then we've taken that to Yale Entertainment, which really embodies Yale Productions as our number one revenue source, our number one production company. We have uh, Great Escape, which is our foreign sales arm as well. We have a company called Lafayette Pictures with Katie Holmes, which really services uh, movies and shows that she would like to produce and direct besides act in. So yeah, I mean, we haven't had any uh, conversations with Yale University. Granted, we have shot in the New Haven area before. That's, you know, that's close enough. At, at least it's an on-brand kind of thing. Now, Jordan Beckerman here, the law background is obviously very unique. How long was it into that law career where you realized that, okay, entertainment law is it for me? For example, was that your specialty in law school? Uh, yeah, so my, my third year of law school, so my last year of law school, I started working for a firm that did a lot of theater uh, and a little bit of film. And um, I had kind of bounced around doing, you know, litigation and uh, different types of, of law. And, and when I saw that I could do this for a career and work in theater and movies, and it, for me, it was just, uh, you know, the light, the light bulb went on and uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, I've always loved film more than anything like I grew up you know going to the theater and and uh, it was just a thing that my father and I did together and so uh, once I found out that I and I, I never went to law school expecting to do this but once I realized that I, I could make a career of doing that it was it was mm -hmm. kind of that was it and so 
that's really all I ever did. Uh, you know, I started in law school. I was hired by that firm coming out of law school. I really focused more on the film side. The theater stuff was great, but my passion was always film. And so uh, I just kind of every client that came in the door that was doing independent film, I just kind of, uh, you know, latched onto and started working with. And so, um, yeah, for me, it was always kind of the, the focus. And uh, but, you know, every time you work on a project, you're sort of involved, but it's not really your project. And so for me, I wanted to kind of, you know, do something where I felt like I had more ownership and I, I had more participation in, in the actual films that were that were happening. And, and so that's where kind of the producing stuff, you know, felt right. And uh, yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been great. And, and the, the legal background helps at times, you know, we negotiate, you know, writer deals and actor deals and all of that kind of stuff. And so having a little bit of a background in that, you know, really does help, uh, you know, on a day to day basis. Hmm. Now, a compliment, a compl question, whatever the term for a combined compliment question is <laughs> uh, to throw at Jordan Levine here. You guys are more in the middle of making filmmaking, not only than anybody realizes, but arguably more than the agents are, more than the talent is, because you have to deal with the money people and the producers, which you are, but you have to deal with the other producers. You have to deal with the talent, the wrangling and all that. So am I wrong to assume that when you have multiple films going on, that there's no sleep happening? <laughs> Um, yeah, there's typically no sleep in general. I mean, you know, on top of movies, I also have two kids and JB has a son as well. But um, no, I mean, the thing is that when we have multiple movies shooting, a lot of the time they're shooting in different time zones. Yes. So you'll have one starting up and one finishing. Um, you know, we've had many overnight shoots where you shoot from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., which are basically a zombie the next day. Um, it's a really wild lifestyle in regards to uh, being on set or even for us. I mean, we're not on set now as much as we used to be because we do have so many productions going on. We can't dedicate all of our time to one in particular. Um, but no, look, we're available 24-7 to our producers and actors and crew members um, kind of on call like a doctor. So yeah. um, it, it, it gets wild, but we do love it. I mean, for us, we much rather have two or three films in production or various stages of development, whether it is pre-production, post-production, a movie premiering, opposed to just kind of sitting around and waiting for something to happen. Hmm. Now, as we're starting to wind down here, I have the same sort of question for both of you, and I'll throw it to JB at first. I find that Whatever field that you're uh, in love with, that's sort of a hobby that you're then able to turn into a career, you are first like a kid in a candy store where you go, wait, free, free movies? Okay. And I get to go on set. I'm going to eat all the craft services. I'm going to go to every premiere, every networking event. Then you eventually burn out and then you get selective and you fall out of love of it uh, with it. And then you come back to loving it again. How do you stay in love with the film business, knowing how the sausage is made? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting uh, question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, for me, this glimpse behind the curtain hasn't really affected my love of, you know, great films, great TV shows. You know, I, I keep discovering, you know, new stuff. And I think for us, it's just about, you know, are we making content that we would want to watch and 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 stuff that we're excited about and so you know we get submitted a project or several a day 
you know, just because we are, you know, not to toot our horn, but relatively prolific, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, young filmmakers and people trying to get their, their projects made, they, they submit to us. And so we have had to be more selective about the projects that we do. There's also, you know, been, been a lot of change in in the marketplace. And so, you know, we have to kind of be adaptive when it comes to what projects we're doing that makes sense, you know, for us. Um, but we also want to make stuff that, that we're excited about, you know, working with cool people that, that, you know, directors that we actually, you know, really like, not just their creative, you know, mind, but also just on a personal level. And, and so that helps a lot if we're working with people that, you know, we're friends with and that we, we like working with. I mean, I think that, you know, who you surround yourself with in this business is everything. I think that, that it really does matter, you know, who you're working with on a day-to-day basis. And I think we've been, um, you know, really good, especially recently about, you know, focusing on projects with, you know, the right kind of, of people. And, and that keeps things fresh and exciting. And, and again, every time you do a new film, it's a whole new, you know, experience and a whole new world. And, and if you can surround yourself with good people, then it, it does keep it fun and, and exciting. Well said. I, I assume that Mr. Levine, you're going to have the same kind of response right there. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, great question, great response. I think that to add to that, I would say that, you know, what we do sometimes becomes very transactional, which mm-hmm. is totally fine. I think that's the case in, in, in a lot of businesses. And, you know, we have to be transactional as well. We have to make these numbers and projects make sense in order to keep going and producing films that we want to produce. Um, and, you know, right now it's it's the award season, right? So part right. of the Producers Guild, which I'm a member of, we get to watch all of the current films that are being nominated um, in different categories. And, and I was able to watch, I mentioned it before, Iron Claw in the last couple of weeks. And for me, it's not only a topic that I am, you know, super excited to explore further through an actual, you know, narrative film with actors like Lily James and Zac Efron and Jeremy. And Max Lockheed. Friedman. Say it again. And Max Friedman. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was in it not as much as he should have been, but that's besides the point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fellow Long Islander as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, it, that gives me, in my opinion, more motivation because I'm like, ah, like it's not just like all transactional what we do. It inspires me and us to be like, let's go out there and, you know, crush these films, but also, yes, make sure to incorporate films that we are wildly passionate about as well. It just makes it even that much sweeter to produce a film where, again, you know, it's a topic uh, that you love from from growing up and still are, you know, attached to in some way, shape or form. So I think that around this time, it gets extra exciting to see movies like The Iron Claw Salt burn, uh, Oppenheimer, just the best of the best to really come out. Well, my last question I don't know if this is going to get a no comment or a you have to wait until the embargo lifts or whatever, but Iron Claws come up a few times. And one of the trends that I see in films as an outsider is whenever one thing from a fan oriented hobby has a successful film. A lot of people are making that. So in the case of the Iron Claw, there's that. There's strong rumors at Netflix that there's a Hulk Hogan biopic. There was basically the Page biopic a couple of years ago, the WWE helped helm. The last question is, is there anything wrestling related on the (laughs) slate of your company or that you're looking into at this point? 
Yeah, interesting question because I know that, yeah, th there's not much that we're allowed to say, but we are working on something. We are. And it was not as a result of the Iron Claw. The Iron Claw was more like, oh, great. It's even more validation that the business in general is booming. Um, you know, I've been a fan and then Jordan and myself, we know a bunch of the wrestlers for, for many years. Uh, one of my best friends was Shad Gaspard, who unfortunately passed away. Yes. He was a groomsman at my wedding. I mean, that's how close we were. I, I didn't um, know that. That That's incredible. And it's wonderful how many people came around from the industry, no matter the company lines, to talk about what a great guy Shad was. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Diamond Dallas Page is how I know Shad. And oh. yeah, yeah. So he, he's I didn't a, know you were also a DDP friend. There you go. <laughs> and and J Jordan and I put him in our movie High Heat with Olga Kirilenko and Don oh. Johnson. And I didn't know that was, and I'm interrupting you again. I didn't know High Heat was one of your films. I was on the junket for that. There you oh, go. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So I think, uh, a long way to say that, yes, we, we do have something in development now. Um, I will say that um, if you are a fan of wrestling, I'm sure you're going to be excited. Wow. And High Heat was, that was a funny action film with a great cast. It was great to see John, uh, to, to see uh, Don Johnson in a smart ass role like that. So kudos to you guys on that one. Oh, so uh, the last thing before I let you go, you we addressed it at the beginning, but what's the next thing from yours that we should be excited about? Sure. I mean, we have around seven movies right now in post-production um, that, I mean, you know, Bucky, F and Dent, you mentioned it before. Uh, we had Parachute that Brittany Snow directed at South by Southwest with Thomas Mann, Courtney Eaton, Dave Batista. Um, wow. Comes yeah. back to wrestling yet again. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That movie should be, and by the way, that was not as a result of us. Dave Batista and Brittany Snow did a movie called Bushwick and they became super close on that. Uh, so that movie will come out probably in April. Um, we haven't announced it yet, but that's what we're uh, hearing. Um, but what else, Jordan? We did a movie called Baron's Cove with Mandalay, who did Air, that came out, of course, crushing it this year. Yeah, yeah. So still finalizing some release dates. But yeah, I think uh, Parachute, Bucky Effing Den. I mean, I think those are kind of the next uh, next ones coming out. And yeah, I think Parachute, April um yeah i'm not sure how much news we're allowed to kind of announce but uh but that, <laughs> that that that's probably the next the next release and then what's the best way to keep up on you guys in closing is it following on instagram or just wait for all the hollywood reporter and variety embargoes to lift kind of both i mean no look we we, we do announce whenever we have a release coming out or movies in development in production um our social media is up there as well um so instagram facebook etc but uh but we're we're always putting out news i would say once a month if not more on what we have going on i mean typically we're producing around 10 movies a year uh at this point i think we're going to produce a bit less and produce more higher budget movies so movies such as the kill room or our film bandit with josh dumel and mel gibson um or stowaway that we executive produced with uh tony collette and anna kendrick so movies like that that are more in like the 10 to 20 million dollar range is what we're focusing on i would say for 2024 chris thank you for taking the time and i have a two-part introductory question the first part how are you today and the second part is how much mail intended for the notorious big accidentally comes to you <laughs> Uh, I'll take the first part of every day, which I'm grateful to be here and I, I'm having a great day and I, I love life. So I'm doing wonderful today. And now after that question, I'm doing even better.
but uh i've gotten i've gotten so much weird stuff you have no idea i actually keep a little notorious big funko pop on my register at the shop so it's pretty awesome it i i found out about that when i was like in fifth grade and i'm like a little chubby white kid in a catholic school and of all people my mother told me hey some rapper has your name and i'm like what and that was it so i take that as a badge honor r.i.p big agreed and you know you're very interesting to me on a few levels first that you're bringing new haven style pizza back and in a great way in Glendale, but also you are that overlapping thing of metal and wrestling and pop culture. So with that upcoming event, this that's the uh, wrestling event. Is that name of that event a reference to Back to the Future like I think it is? Yes. So the company we're working with, Wrestling Pro Wrestling, we're all we're just all big nerds. I think what's great about living in L.A., I've been here almost a decade now. I And I, I take pride in being a nerd. I have tons of Funko Pops. I listen to metal pop punk all that stuff since i was a kid and part of my story is i got sober about three years ago when i did you go introspective and i was like i'm just gonna love myself and everything i've ever loved and just grow with it so those three things are metal wrestling and pizza and now that's my life so i'm really grateful i get to do all three and yeah my friend matt robb who's now a co-owner of wrestling pro wrestling came up with the name idea we were spitballing and i was like well it's around that Valentine's Day. It's around the Super Bowl. And it's also, we love Back to the Future. So boom, St. Valentine's Day Massacre under the sea. And it's just awesome. I'm hoping I'm not giving away a joke, but is anyone going to be cosplaying as Marvin Berry as part of the event? There's a possibility that we will see. <laughs> we will see. We have It's fun. So the event, uh, not to jump ahead too much, is uh, there, are, there are comedy wrestling promotion. So all of the uh, most of the matches are actually in best way to describe it is mascot outfits. So large, large foam heads, everything, because they have a prop guy that makes them all. So we're really excited. We're debuting a character that we're sponsoring that's pizza related the night of the show, which I'm very excited. And I just got the news and I'll announce it today. I get to be part of the show. So I am thrilled and I'll make sure my pizza hands don't get hurt in any way, shape or form. So I'm just super pumped about it. So it sounds like Kaiju Big Battle, but in the modern era and with pizza. Dude, you're the second person to say that, and I'll give you the Air 5 from across the Zoom link. It's, it, dude, it's nailed it. It's going to be, I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. So going down the pizza menu, there's some great pop culture references on the menu. Ray Liotta gets a shout out with one of your pizzas, but I see a You're Welcome. Is that a Damien Sandow pizza? Uh, I actually never even realized that, but that is an awesome deep dive into wrestling culture there. What it is is, so New Haven Pizza, if you want to go back to the lineage of it, Frank Pepe, the originator basically of the style in New Haven, Connecticut, over 100 years ago now, he put clams on a pizza first, just kind of out of necessity, because the story is that there was a bookie that was in his alleyway that kept bugging him about he had clams and he threw them on a pizza. I hope that story is true. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, but he threw them on. So the famous white clam pie from Frank Pepe's was born. So when we started Ozzy's, I always said, I'm never doing that because I'll never be able to touch that. Cause I, there's a lot of, you have to get the right clams. You have to do this and that. And then after a year and we've been pretty successful with, you know, with the Leota, which is the tomato pie and doing authentic styles from where I, from New Haven, I was like, all right, let me see what I can do. And gratefully you got a great food fish distributor who can get me the clams from the Northeast. And I was like, I'll give it a try. 
So then my business partner, Craig, was like, what are we going to call it? I'm like, it's, it's you're welcome. Because everyone bugs me every day on DMs. When are you doing? When are you doing clam? When are you doing clam? I'm like, so here you go. You're welcome. And it's it's taken off, which is pretty cool. So again, New Haven style pizza, but being a big baseball fan growing up, being a Mets fan, Bobby Valentine always said in interviews that he invented the rap at his deli in New Haven. Have you ever heard that story? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bobby Valentine's nuts. I love him. I'm a Yankee guy, but we're kindred spirits. As long as you're not a Red Sox fan, we can continue the interview. It's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, I remember that story. He's a big staple in Connecticut and he's crazy. And I love him to death, but he did not invent the rap. I will stand on that flag. But if he did, hey, good for you, Bobby. He also wore a mustache in the dugout one time. So, right, you know. He got kicked out of the game. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. So where I'm going with all that is not just non sequiturs and pop culture nonsense. It's that I'm in New York. People always talk about the greatest Italian food being in New York. But then the more people that you talk to in the Northeast, you find out that Rhode Island and Providence secretly have amazing Italian food you don't really know about that I've only been through New Haven once or twice a wedding that I think our mutual friend Chewy was at stuff like mm -hmm. that but is New Haven secretly a food haven and we just don't know it oh it's it's one of the best food havens in the country if not the world for Italian American food so growing up I grew up in East Haven Connecticut which is literally just one of the towns neighboring New Haven and it's predominantly Italian American so growing mm -hmm. up I literally just assumed that all Italian American food was this good everywhere. And then when I moved to California, I found out really quickly it was not. <laughs> so I, I, that's what got me into pizza was the deep dive of it. And the history of it's pretty simple. You know, when everyone started coming over to Ellis Island in the late 1800s, New York was the stopping point first. But New York started to get oversaturated and business uh, landscape started to get too saturated. So literally, like Frank Pepe, other people just started to travel north. Mm -hmm. And that's how you create this amazing belt of Italian-American cuisine, starting in New York City and going all the way up into Massachusetts. And there's this thing, I've, someone did an article called The Pizza Belt, I read a while ago, and they say, like, you can get great pizza within five miles of your house if you live in, like, Rhode Island all the way down to, I think it's, like, South Jersey at the most. And it's beautiful. So, yeah, besides, like, um, all the amazing pizzerias and everything in New Haven, we're also known, known for amazing Italian pastries, obviously. So there's a place called Libby's that's next door to Pepe's. So if you're looking to be in a food coma one day, you go to Pepe's for lunch and you literally cross the parking lot. You get an espresso, a cannoli, and Italian ice at Libby's and your, your day's all set. And we're also like, Connecticut's also known for great burgers. Louis Lunch is the originator of the hamburger in New Haven. And, and what's interesting is, yeah, once I moved out here to California, I found out a lot of people went to college at Yale or UConn. So a lot of people knew about it from that. And then you find out that a lot of people stayed there for after they graduated and built families there. And then they would move out, come back to the coast, and they bring that with them. So now at the pizzeria, it's beautiful to meet all these families. They're like, I haven't tasted this since college. And I, I met my wife at college over Pepe's or Sally's or something. And I like a, like a lot of cuisines that are built in like uh, immigrant culture. It's mm -hmm. really it's all familial, you know, and like it brings you back to that nostalgia of it. So if you ever can make a stop and I'm in town, we're going to go you and me. We're going to do the whole run. We're going to eat about 12,000 calories, but it's going to be <laughs> worth it. Well, follow up food question. One of the myths 
I don't know if it's a myth. I don't know if it's a fact here that you hear when you talk to people who've relocated to the West Coast is, oh, there's this great pizza place in, and then they obviously Los Angeles or Las Vegas, and they explain it's because they import the water. Is that true? <laughs> or, or is that just something that people have been repeating? Okay, this is a two-part answer, and I'm glad you asked this. So there is places that literally on the West Coast, I, they will remain, remain nameless because I'm not giving them free promotion, but they literally have machines in their kitchen with branding that says New York Water Filtration System. We filtrate the water to taste like New York. That's the greatest marketing scheme I've ever seen in my life, first right. of all. Snake, snake oil, more or less. Snake oil, yeah. And <laughs> whether it does or not, whatever. You could talk to a million pizza guys. Water is extremely important, but it's all about consistency. And the one thing I've learned from making pizza for years and just talking to other people, New York water has an amazing mineral content that's consistent. So that's why people do say that. But, but you don't need to ship <laughs> ship your water. I'll give you a, just a, my buddies uh, in college or high school owned a bakery. And they made like Italian bread, stuff like that. This is right. in Connecticut. And I was, I remember the water question came up and I was like, Mr. B, the owner, it's like, what water do you, like, what do you do? He goes, I use bottled water. I'm like, what do you mean you use bottled water? Like, cause it's the same every time. And that's what tipped me off. Just consistency. Right. I, is there something to it? I, yes, I guess in a molecular way, but whoever says that, like, they're just, they're full of it. In my opinion. Outrocast.